What's up? Thanks so much for checking out this message today. Our church is in a series titled Mosaic, where we are uncovering the unique pieces of Jesus' character. We hope that this message today helps you see that there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. Before you go, make sure to hit that subscribe button so that you can get the most up-to-date Elevate City content. And if this message has blessed you, feel free to give in the link below so that this message can get in front of more people. Thanks so much. Hope you enjoy. Man, I don't even know if I need to preach after that, amen? Just that moment was so powerful. Can you give it up for our worship team who leads us so well every single week? I love that up here, it's not about a production or a performance, but that it's about encountering the living God, amen? That they can go off script and that they can just let everything get stripped away and just have our focus and our gaze fixed on Jesus. It is so good to worship in this house. I love it. Um, I could not be more jacked for today. Um, today we are starting a new collection of talks and we are in a new season that I cannot wait for you to experience. I think that it is going to be massive for our church. Um, I wanna start today a little bit different. I want for you to look at this. I want for you to see it. Camera guy, if you could maybe zoom in on it so that our online audience can get a good view. Look at it, isn't it lovely? Isn't it, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it captivating? Isn't it majestic? Isn't it intriguing and enthralling? Like, doesn't it belong in a museum? Hardly. It's small, it's dull, it's insignificant, it's square. Could it be that this is how many of us see Jesus. We see him as dull, as small, as square, as disconnected, as insignificant, as unconsequential. You know, for a lot of my life, I saw Jesus through a very narrow view. I saw him as very small, very square, very insignificant. I was familiar with one, maybe two aspects of his character. I knew him maybe as the son of God or the savior of the world, whatever that meant, but that was pretty much it. And I want for you to know today that something massive happened in my life. Something began to change in my life when I stopped seeing Jesus as some insignificant tile that didn't fit in my life. And I started to see Jesus as a mosaic, as something that was full of beauty and grace and diversity and brought meaning to all of life. Jesus is a mosaic. This mosaic is actually one that was made in the likeness of Michelangelo's painting atop the Sistine Chapels, the creation of Adam. And it was actually constructed by the leader of mosaics for the Vatican. And why my friend trusted me with it today, I have no idea. Jesus is a mosaic. You know, I think that art can teach us something really interesting about life, something really interesting about religion. 
If you look at religious history over the last several hundred years, many of us have a very narrow, a very shallow, a very zoomed in picture of Jesus. And what we end up doing is we neglect all of the other pieces, all of the other aspects, all the other beautiful parts of his character that really make him who he is. Jesus is not the small, seemingly insignificant tile that you don't know how fits into your life. He is actually a collection of beautiful characters that brings meaning to every aspect of your life. What I want to do in this season over the next several weeks is to help you step back from the zoomed in picture that you may have of Jesus that makes him seem small and insignificant and disconnected and show you that that may be a part of him, yes, but that there is this whole other person, that there are all these other dimensions to his character that make him the majestic, the magnificent, the Mona Lisa, the mosaic that he really is. A mosaic can be defined as a combination of diverse elements forming a a more coherent whole. And what I want to do is I want to show you a combination of Jesus' diversity that blows your mind. I want to show you that he is more than a religious guy, that he is more than just the son of God, that he is so much more than you have conceived before. And I want for you to see that there is this complexity to him, this intensity within him, this beauty that is beyond what this world has to offer. Jesus is a mosaic. You know, if you ask most Christians to tell you who Jesus is, they would tell you that he's the son of God. If you ask most people, they would say Jesus at least claimed that he was the son of God. And this is largely in part due to the most famous verse in the Bible that was written by Tim Tebow, John 3.16. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And although Tim Tebow didn't write it, he certainly made it famous. It's on his eyes, it's on billboards, it's on It's on banners, sporting events, it's everywhere. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so many of us, when we think about God, when we think about Jesus, we think about him as the son of God. But I want for you to know today that Jesus did not most often refer to himself as the son of God. He most often referred to himself as the son of man, the son of man, not the son of God, but the son of God of man. This was actually Jesus' favorite title that he gave to himself. He used this title more than he used any other title. It was like his favorite nickname. Some 83 times throughout the gospels, Jesus uses the title, the son of man to refer to himself. Now here's what is interesting. It's Jesus' favorite nickname, but it is almost exclusively used by Jesus to refer to himself. His disciples never refer to him as the son of man. Satan even calls him the son of God. The demons call him the son of God. Ordinary people would have called him the son of David. You you see when he's before the Sanhedrin, they ask him, are you the son of God? Caiaphas wants to know, are you the son of God? The soldier who stands there after he's been crucified realizes, truly I say to you, this is the son of God. But Jesus always called himself the son of man. It was his favorite nickname for himself that never caught on. How embarrassing for Jesus. 
It would be like me getting up here today and going, I am the prince of preachers. And y'all being like, nah. (laughs) Jesus uses this title over and over and over again. He wants people to see him with crystal clarity in all of his brilliance as the son of man. Do you have any conception in your mind what he might have meant, why he would have referred to himself this way, why he didn't want for us to just see him merely as the son of God, but he was obsessed with us seeing him as the son of man. This happens in Matthew 16. Jesus is on a journey with his disciples and they're actually going to a vacation spot, which I think is really interesting. This place called Caesarea Philippi, which means in honor of Caesar. And it would have been this place that was flowing with water. It would have been like going to like a lake or a river and going to spend time there. And on the way, on this journey, Jesus begins to talk to his disciples about this very question. Look at what he says, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? What a question. Because people say a lot of things about Jesus today, don't they? Some say that he was a great teacher. Some say that he was a moral authority. Some say that he was just another man. Some say that he was an insurrectionist. Some say that he's a myth. And, And Jesus realizes this. Jesus realizes that his life has such gravity, it's got such intensity, such vibrancy that people are gonna say a lot of things about him, a lot of wrong things about him. It was happening then and it's happening now. Look, they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I? Who do you say that I am? It is maybe the most important question that you will ever be asked in your entire life. Not what does culture say that Jesus is? Or what does your family say that Jesus is? Or what does your pastor say that Jesus is? But who do you say that Jesus is? Peter responds, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, my father who is in heaven. So this is what you need to know about the son of man is that throughout the Old Testament, this phrase son of man is just used to describe humans. In Hebrew, it would have been translated like this. It would have either been uh, Ben Enosh or Ben Adam. Ben Enosh or Ben Adam, meaning son of man or son of Adam. In the book of Ezekiel, it is used over 93 times referring to the prophet Ezekiel. And all that it's saying is, I'm just a dude. Like I'm just a bro, a regular guy. Like I'm not an angel in the flesh. I'm not the Messiah. Don't crown me king. I'm just a guy. 93 times Ezekiel says this, that I am just a guy, but something really interesting, something really peculiar, something very obscure happens in the book of Daniel. Check it out, Daniel chapter seven, this phrase, son of man is used. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days And he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples and nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. Uh Oh, 
all of the sudden it is not just son of man, but there is this God man, this glorious man. The reason that Jesus used this title son of man is because he wanted us to see the mystery of his humanity with his deity. His humanity with his deity. Theologians have come to call this the hypostatic union. And the reason that I tell you that today is because I'm wearing ripped jeans and I want for you to think I'm smart, okay? The hypostatic union and the fact that God and man are together in the person of Jesus. It's this beautiful truth that for thousands of years, the church has held as our confession and that you cannot miss today. It is something that makes our faith so extraordinary and so different, so peculiar, so unique and so beautiful that the God of creation, that the God of glory would leave behind his home in heaven and he would step into humanity. A beautiful thing that we see is that Jesus doesn't reveal this to his people very easily or very quickly. Jesus uses the title son of man because he wants us to see what's happened, but he uses clues for us to pick up on it along the way. If you notice what he's doing is he's, he's trying to leave these clues when he's saying, I'm the son of man, I'm the son of man, I'm the son of man, the son of man can do this, the son of man can do that. So that vigilant Jews would be able to pick up on exactly what he's doing. I love that this is how Jesus operates that knowing him is like going on an adventure, that it's like discovering a mystery, that every turn that there is more, that there is more beauty, that there's more depth than you could have ever imagined. And so what he does is he slowly begins to show these people that he's the son of man, but he doesn't want it to happen too quickly. This is why Matthew 16, 20 happens, where he strictly charges his disciples to tell no one that he's the Christ. He reveals to them that the son of man is humanity and deity, that God became flesh. But he says, I don't want for you to tell anybody because I know that if you tell people that they'll kill me for it and I've got a mission to accomplish before I get to that point. So yes, I'm the son of man, but right now I want people to see me as a human, but know for certainty that one day I'm coming back in glory, that one day I will fulfill the expectation of the prophet Daniel. This is what he goes on to say in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not take, taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Jesus takes people on a wild ride of seeing what it means for the son of man to be deity and humanity. He reveals it as clues slowly but surely, step by step, piece by piece to show the world that he is a mosaic. He is God and man. What a tension. I want to take you on that adventure today. I want for you to start off today seeing Jesus as more human than you've ever seen Jesus before so that you can worship him as deity, as the God who stepped into humanity for humanity to rescue humanity. But before you can worship him as deity, you must first see him as humanity. Do you know how human Jesus is? The first time that he uses this phrase, the son of man is found in Matthew chapter eight. He says this, he says, and Jesus said to them, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, 
but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Think about this for a second. God became homeless. God became homeless. Foxes, they got holes. Birds, they got nests. I ain't got nowhere to lay my head. Do you see Jesus like this? Like the fact that Jesus has seen some stuff, y'all. Like he was out on the streets, you know what I'm saying? Like he's been around the block a time or two. He is not buttoned up and polished and a king sitting in the castle. He's homeless. Do you see Jesus, this human? I, I want for you to try to take off the religious costume that you've put Jesus in that keeps him from feeling personal and intimate and real. And I want for you to realize that he was human. He was like you and me. He felt what we feel. He dealt, dealt with what we deal with. He didn't just come as some cushy, comfy, religious figure detached from people, but he got in there, in the grind and in the mess and in the muck and in the mire. And he did it so that he could know, so that he could know. Donald Miller um, author, pastor, writer of the story brand, he talks about the fact that we're all looking for a guide. All of us, especially people who are living in a fatherless generation, we're looking for a guide. We're looking for somebody to lead us, to guide us, to instruct us. And we want for that guide to be somebody who's got empathy and authority empathy and authority. We want for them to be able to empathize with our situation, meet us where we are, but have the authority to take us where we wanna go. And Jesus comes as humanity and deity. So he says that I can empathize with your situation, but I can take you to where you're supposed to go. Jesus came as a human, more human than you could have ever imagined. Like what extent of the human experience did Jesus try on for size? How human was he? Like, did he get a stomach ache? Did he have a pimple that he was really embarrassed about? Was he ever preaching a sermon and had his voice crack? Mine has. How human was he? The author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter two, verse 17, says it like this, for this reason, he had to be made like them. Look at this part, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. He did it so that he could empathize, so that he could go, I, I get it, I understand. I know, I'm not, I'm not just far off, disconnected. I know, like look at how human he became. Matthew one says that he was born human. Luke two says he grew. John four says he got tired and thirsty. Matthew four says he got hungry. Mark 4 says he slept. Matthew 27 says he died. Sounds pretty human. Mark 3 says he got angry. Matthew 8 says he marveled. Matthew 9 says he's moved with compassion. And John 11 says he weeps. He weeps. He is so unbelievably human. He was a son and a man, he was a brother and a friend. He was so human. His parents lost him. There's this, there's this crazy story where his parents lose him. And, and, and then we find out this crazy part, like this is going to blow your mind today, that there was actually stuff that Jesus didn't know. 
things that he didn't know. I don't know if there's space for that in your theology. Maybe you're a really great Christian and you understand God's sovereignty. And you're like, no, he knows everything. Well, the problem with that is the Bible. And Mark chapter 13, verse 32, speaking of judgment day says this, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. There are things that he didn't know, doesn't know. So wait, you're telling me that even Jesus knows like what it feels like to not know, like to not know who I'm gonna marry, to not know if I'm gonna get married, to not know what she's thinking, to not know what's gonna happen next, to not know how long this sermon is going to be. Jesus knows (laughs) what that feels like. There's stuff he didn't know. Check this part out. I find this so fascinating. Luke chapter two, verse 52. It says that Jesus grew. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus grew. Jesus didn't come out the womb doing calculus. And let's be real. How terrifying would it be if he had? He grew, he matured, he grew up, he figured things out, he went through difficulty. So he knows what it's like to not be where you wanna be and to be in process. Like today, if you come in and you feel like your expectation for your life and the reality for your life has this massive gap and you're frustrated by where you are and you're disappointed by where you're not, Jesus knows. He knows what it's like to have to go through a season of growth. He knows what it's like to grow up to have to grow up all by yourself without your dad, to be and feel like you've been left stranded with nobody to look to and nobody to turn to and you're just here all alone and you gotta grow up and figure it out. And you may feel like that today, like you're just having to grow up so fast, so many decisions and so many calculations and you don't know who to look to or where to turn to, Jesus knows. He knows what it's like to have to grow up really fast and all alone, he knows. He got the human experience at a level that many of us aren't aware of and for a reason that we don't understand. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14 says it like this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, one of the things that we have a tendency of doing to put up relational walls between people is telling them they don't know. Like you don't know. You just don't get it, okay? Like poor, like if you grew up poor and somebody like grew up rich, you're just like, you don't know. Like you really don't know, okay? You don't know what it's like to be so poor that you go to KFC to lick other people's fingers, okay? Like you don't know. Maybe, maybe if you grew up in a big family and you're talking to somebody who grew up in a small family, you're like, no, you don't get it. Like my brother is crazy, like crazy, like certifiable, put him in an institution, crazy, okay? You don't know. Like if you grew up a Patriots fan, I promise you don't know what it's like to be a Falcons fan, okay? but I know what it's like to be a Braves fan, hello? But you don't know. (laughs) 
You don't know what it's like to want to win for so long and then finally win. You just don't know. You don't get it if you cheer for the Yankees, okay? The best team money can buy, right? Like you don't know. You don't know. The other day I was in the car with Raleigh and we were talking about some things and she was like playing with her Barbie and she was like using it and she was like trying to tell me about it. And I was like, wait, wait, baby, no, do it like this. She was like, dad, you just don't understand. (laughs) I was like, you're right. I never play with Barbies. I don't understand. You know, the beauty of Jesus is that he knows that he understands every aspect, every component of the human experience, no matter where you are or where you find yourself today, he knows. We've got a faithful high priest. Like when you pray, he's not going, oh, tough, sucks to suck, nerd. (laughs) Nah, he's like, I get that. Like, I feel that. Like, I've dealt with that. Like, I know that that's hard. I know that that's difficult. I know that that's overwhelming. I know that that's intense. I, I know. I know you're wondering, like, does he, Joe, does he, does he, does he, does he know? Are you sure? Are you, pop? I don't think he knows, bro. Like, it's 20, it's 2020. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. Now, I want to show you how, how much he knows. I want to show you how much he knows. Jesus knows what it's like to work. You ever think about that? Jesus knows what it's like to work. Work is a big deal right now. So much going on in our economy, people's financial situations, job loss, job creation. It's a a big topic of conversation. Jesus knows what it's like to work. The Bible actually says that um, that he was in the workforce longer than he was in the ministry that he was in the marketplace before he was ever in the ministry, that for 30 years he grew up and that for three years he did ministry. And so Jesus was a carpenter. According to tradition, about the age of 12, Jesus would have joined the family business and he would have started working with his dad. And so he knows what it's like to have a dad, a stepdad, Joseph, teaching him how to work, teaching him a trade, teaching him a craft. He knows what it's like to have to hustle. He knows what it's like to get splinters in his fingers. He knows what it's like to measure something incorrectly. He knows what it's like to make something and then have it to make it again. He knows what it's like to not be good at something and then start to become good at something. Like he gets, he gets that process. He's in a business. So he understands the accounting and the, and, and, and having to make a sale. He, he gets what it's like. Like, I'm sure he had the stress of coming up with like a a name for his business. Like, what are we going to call this thing? Father and son's carpentry. Let's call it father and son carpentry, right? Like he knows. He's he's felt life at that level. We know that from his career in ministry that he knows what it's like to manage people. Hello? To have people who report to you and who listen to you and who look to you and who are looking for you to have all the answers and for you to feel like, I don't know if I've got the answers. And for you to have people who work for you, who question you and who ask you really weird questions, who you're like, it feels really simple. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they're like, but why? Why do we need to do that? He knows what it's like to try to explain something and people go, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. What do you, wait, wait, you want me to do what? Wait, you want me to go where? Like he knows. You've ever been frustrated by your employees before? Jesus knows. He knows what it's like to have to go to work and to work with people. He knows, but he doesn't just know what it's like to go to work. He knows what it's like to have relationships. Like Jesus understands family relationships. Newsflash is life. 
Life is about relationships. I don't know what else you're living for or what you've become distracted by or what you think is going to satisfy and bring meaning to life, but I'm here to tell you today that life is about relationships, that in the end, progress isn't going to matter. People will. And Jesus understands how important relationship is. He has a family. He has a mom named Mary and a stepdad named Joseph. He knows what it's like to be abandoned by his father. He knows what it's like to have brothers and cousins and aunts and uncles. He knows what it's like to have a family that he kind of wishes he could disown. Anybody got a family that you're like, I wish that they weren't. (laughs) Jesus gets it. Let me show you. Mark chapter three, verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your brother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? I don't know those people. No, Jesus is your brother, like with a pocket protector, like he's here to see you. Nope, doesn't ring a bell. He knows what it's like to have a crazy family that he's a little ashamed of. He knows. He knows what it's like to be single. For 33 years, Jesus is actually single. So I I wanna stretch your mind for a second here. I want for you to try to imagine this with me. One of the most common pictures for the church and Jesus throughout scripture is that the church is the bride of Christ and that Jesus is the husband who will one day marry his wife. But so, so he has in him this longing expectation for marriage, this desire for to, to be united, to be with somebody. But he is here for 33 years in agony wanting something that he can't have, desiring fulfillment that never gets brought, wanting to be close and be understood and be seen and be loved. And he doesn't get it. He knows what it's like, the painful agony to cry himself to sleep, wanting to be connected to somebody and not being able to be connected. He knows. I just wanna stretch your imagination. The Bible says that he was tempted in every way and yet without sin. And so that means that Jesus was tempted with a desire for sex, but had to overcome it. He probably never thought about Jesus having to resist that. Every temptation. So even possibly sex with the same sex and had to resist it. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. So that when you find yourself in that situation, you can know that he sees you. Wherever you are, wherever you found yourself today, he he knows. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights as he prepares for ministry and Satan comes to him and he begins to tempt him and he tells him that he can turn these stones into bread to eat something that's not really gonna satisfy and he tells him that if he'll he'll just throw himself off of this this mountain or of this this high building that, that he'll have everything, which sounds like Jesus was even tempted with suicide. Jesus was tempted 
by what would happen if he just ended it, if he just took his life, if he just cashed it in. It would be worth it. You would get everything you want. You would finally have peace if you just gave him the temptation to take your life. So if you've ever found yourself there, he knows. He knows. Jesus is tempted to bow down and to worship Satan for personal gain. And so let me ask you, has anything ever been presented to you that just looked like it was so appetizing and so satisfying and so enthralling and so thrilling and so enticing and so sexy that if you just did it, just got it, just this once, that it would meet all your needs and that you would be fulfilled? And if you just looked this one time and if you just, if you just hit it this one time and if you just drank once, then, then it would be, you'd be satisfied and fulfilled. He knows he knows what it's like to feel like, oh man, that's gonna do it. That's going to satisfy. It's gonna bring that peace. It's gonna bring that pleasure. And to pass it on, he knows. He knows what it's like to feel unimaginable pain. Unimaginable pain. The story goes that Jesus is in a town teaching and he gets word from some of his best friends that, his best friend, Lazarus, has become sick. He's become ill. And Jesus stays in that town for a couple more days. And his best friend, Lazarus, dies. And as the Bible tells the story, Jesus rolls up onto the scene. And the funeral is already in process. And people are angry. They're angry. Where were you, Jesus? If you had only been here, Jesus. He knows what it's like to feel people being disappointed in him. Jesus knows what it's like to feel like he let somebody down. And he walks into that funeral and people are just a wreck, man. They're emotional and undone and they can't make sense of it. And why would you allow this to happen? And how did we get here? And the authors, the compilers of the Bible, they summarize Jesus' emotion of feeling this pain with the shortest word verse in all of scripture. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. He wept uncontrollably. This isn't like a, like a tear ran down his brow. It is like he is sobbing, snarling, like, like embarrassing. Get yourself together, Jesus. You're causing a scene, Jesus. And he wept. He knows what it's like to feel unimaginable pain, to have death come knocking on your door or knocking on your family or knocking on your friendship. He knows what it's like to lose somebody that he loved, to lose somebody that he cared about, to lose somebody too soon. Wow. He knows. He knows. He knows this unimaginable pain at a level that I think is beyond comprehension. We know that Jesus doesn't perform any healings, that throughout his ministry, three years of ministry, that he raises three people from the dead. And so it is accurate to believe that Jesus has the ability or the knowledge to do this. Now, history tells us that at some point in Jesus' life, his stepdad, Joseph, dies. He dies. He's nowhere in the scene. He is not present. And so it would lead us to believe that Jesus had the ability and the power to raise his stepdad from the dead, but that he didn't. Why? So that he could know what it's like to lose a dad so that he could sympathize with what it's like to lose somebody who's close to you somebody who replaced somebody who had abandoned you and to lose that person too Jesus refuses to exercise power so that he can understand empathy 
so that he can see you in your situation of desperateness, of despair, of heartbreak. He knows. He knows. Jesus knows what it's like to be celebrated and then forgotten. Jesus is the, he's the hot commodity, man. He rolls onto the Jerusalem circuit and people love him. They love him. They love his teaching. They love his style. Crowds are gathering. He's performing miracle. People are getting Jesus tattoos, Jesus bumper stickers. Everybody's a fan. Everybody's a fan. His, his album's number one, top of the charts, success on the rise. He's trending. The, the story goes that on Palm Sunday, he comes into Jerusalem and people are like, literally, they're throwing down these palm branches. They're throwing their coats, getting Jesus to sign their Bibles. They're just cheering them on. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. On Monday, they celebrate him. On Tuesday, they celebrate him. On Wednesday, they celebrate him. On Thursday, they celebrate him. And on Friday, they chant, crucify him. Wow. Crucify him. He knows what it's like to be loved and then be hated, to be celebrated and then forgotten, to be the center of attention and then to feel like nobody cares, to be wanted and then rejected, to be loved and then hated. He knows. He knows. He, from there, goes into a place of knowing what it's like to experience torment at the highest level he knows what it's like to be betrayed. If you study Jesus' life, you see that there's about 120 people who follow Jesus around in crowds wherever he goes. And then there's 72 people who are a little bit closer who Jesus trains for the work of ministry. And then within that, there's these 12, these 12 people who are with him wherever he goes, sees all of his teaching. They're his closest disciples. And then even within that, there's this inner three who are his very best friends who get to see him in all of his glory. And Jesus... On that Friday, when they chant, crucify him, what had happened just before that is in the middle of the night, Jesus was praying. And one of the 12, one of the 12, not one of the 120 or one of the 72, one of the 12 walks up to him, kisses him on the cheek and betrays him. He looks at Judas and he goes, you, you're supposed to be one of my boys. You're supposed to have my back. You're supposed to be there. You, and he's betrayed with a kiss and he's placed into the hands of sinful men. You know, I think that one of the most human moments of Jesus, one of the most unimaginable moments of Jesus is found in Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew 26, where Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he is praying just before all of this is about to transpire, just before all of this is about to go down, he is praying and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He knows. He knows what it's like to have to do something that he does not want to do. 
He knows what it's like to have to go somewhere that he does not want to go. He knows what it's like to carry a burden that feels suffocating. The Bible says that he sweats blood. He knows what it's like to be anxious and stressed and overwhelmed and disappointed and confused and to say, if there's any way to get me out of this, please just get me out of this. I wanna get out of my thoughts and out of my mind. I wanna step aside and not have to carry this through. He knows, he knows but he also knows what it's like for that cup to not pass and for him to have to drink him, for him to have to drink it, for him to have to do the thing that is going to crush him. And so he knows what it's like to carry his own cross. He knows what it's like to have nine inch nails driven through his hands, experiencing torture and agony at a level that maybe no human had ever experienced before because he was physically tortured, yes, but he was spiritually tortured as well because he had all of the sins of humanity dropped on him in that moment so that he could experience the empathy that he was supposed to have for you and me. Jesus is deity made humanity. But the beauty of the story, is that Jesus' execution is also his exaltation. In the story of Daniel, Daniel, when he saw this vision, he saw this vision and in this vision there were beasts, beasts that were terrorizing the world. And there was this one like a son of man who came before these beasts and these beasts gave the son of man all that they had. And the son of man allowed these beasts to overcome him. And it was by the son of man being overcome by the beasts that the beast was overcome. Jesus, deity steps into humanity, allows the beast of our sin and our shame to overcome him so that you and I can now overcome. He becomes the great high priest who sits on a throne of grace, but who is coming again in glory and in majesty and who is so worthy of our worship. You know, every time throughout the scriptures that Jesus is seen as the son of man, many of it happens in the book of Revelation and Jesus is always seen as sitting. says things like, behold, I saw the throne of God and at his right hand, the son, and he was sitting. Behold, the son was sitting at the right hand of the father, robed with glory and majesty from on high. He was sitting, he was sitting, he was sitting, except for once. In the book of Acts, there's this story where there's this guy named Stephen and he was one of Jesus's followers. One of Jesus' friends, he would have heard Jesus say dozens, hundreds of times, I'm the son of man. I'm the son of man. I'm just like you. I breathe the air that you breathe. I drink the water you drink. I feel the pain you feel. I'm just like you. And this Stephen, he would have seen Jesus go to the cross. He would have seen Jesus empty himself, deliver himself into the hands of sinful men, allow himself to be crushed by the beasts of this world. Even when he didn't want to, he would have seen it. 
And so Stephen is standing up as, as a man for Jesus, who's the son of God. There are these people who don't like it. Culture defies it. Nobody wants it. But Stephen is saying, I'm telling you, he's what you're supposed to live for. I'm telling you, he's worth dying for. I'm telling you, he is who he said he was. I'm telling you, he's coming again. I'm telling you, he makes a way for your sins to be forgiven. I'm telling you, he's the only God of all creation. I'm telling you. And so Stephen, just a man, dies for Jesus, the Son of God. And I want for you to see what's happening in heaven, what Stephen sees the Son of Man doing in this moment in Scripture, because he's becoming the first Christian martyr. And this is what it says, Acts chapter 7, now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus isn't sitting, he's standing, applauding, come on. I became the son of man, so you could become a son of God. We have a faithful high priest today, church. Somebody who empathizes with our weakness and someone who celebrates when we take steps of faith. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I believe that there's some celebrating that God wants to do today. I believe that there's some people who came in here today and they've never known Jesus like this. They knew him as religious. They knew him as ambiguous. They knew him as distant, knew him as angry they didn't know that he was full of empathy and full of authority. I wonder, do you know him today? God's word says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is God, that he is King, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. The reality is, is there is a great beast in this world that is warring against you. The reality is, is that there is sin within you, but there's a savior who's come for you. If you wanna give your life, if you wanna meet Jesus, the masterpiece, the mosaic, the most beautiful one of them all today, I just invite you to pray this with me. Jesus, I need you. I believe that you're the son of man and I believe that you're the son of God. I believe you died for my sin and I believe you rose again from the dead. Make me a son of God today. If you prayed that prayer, then we wanna, we wanna celebrate with you. We wanna celebrate with all of heaven that lost people have gotten found, that orphans have become sons, that dead people have been made alive. And so on the count of three, I'm just gonna invite you to take a step of faith, just like Stephen, and to lift your hand as a sign of surrender today, that you're putting your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus, the Son of Man. One, two, three.
Yeah, come on, amen, amen. Can we praise God? Let's stand together and thank God that He is saving people in this house today. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we adore you. You alone are the Son of Man, the Son of God, the highest, the greatest, the one who is worthy. We trust in your name, in your name alone. And we worship you today. We love you today. We lift high your name today. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Can we make some noise one more time for the Son of Man?